This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We're going to start things off talking about taxes, paying taxes, and what the government does with our tax dollars. Always a hot topic. I would love it if you weighed in on this for us. 604-280-9898, even if you just want to vent, because I feel like that's what I need to do. I need to vent about this. Uh, A report is out from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation about just how much our Governor General spends on dry cleaning. Dry cleaning. I can't remember the last time I took something in for dry cleaning. It's just not something that I do. I don't think a lot of people do this anymore uh, because A, like it's expensive and B, there's other implications, environmental, those type of things. But the governor general has spent $117,000, yes, $117,000 on dry cleaning. Now, this is over an extended period. This is since 2017, so it's like a long period of time. But just just to bring that home for you, like let's say it's about $20,000 a year. Do you know how much the governor general makes a year? $351,600. $351,600, and they have a $130,000 clothing budget. This is just bananas, right? I think the reason that I'm talking about this is because I think it so perfectly highlights the inequality between people who have wealth and power in our country and people who do not. So here now to sort of talk about what we can do about this and how we can sort of, you know, try to take some of the power back. Franco Terrazano, he's the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and it's always great to speak with him. Thanks so much for being here, Franco. Nice to talk to you. Hey, Hey, thanks for having me on this morning to be your listeners. Uh, what is it, morning shot of coffee, I guess? Yeah, I guess. So, like, am I, do you feel like I'm justified in my, uh, my, my vitriol when I read this story? Like, you must be, right? This is, like, these numbers are insane. They're insane. $117,000 on dry cleaning since 2018. $1,800 a month. Folks, we, uh, we asked uh, an Ottawa dry cleaner just, you know, they put it into normal people terms for us here, and they told us, you know, for that kind of money, we could have dry cleaned 13,000 blouses or 6,000 dresses. Okay, now, one more thing to add in here, folks. You mentioned the 117,000, the fact that it's 1,800 bucks a month on dry cleaning, the fact that a governor general gets a $130,000 credit card to spend on new clothes. One more thing. We're also paying for staff at Rideau Hall to do the laundry. Yeah. Okay? So you pay for staff to do the laundry. You pay for the governor general's clothing allowance and massive salary. And then you also pay for dry cleaning on top of it. 
it's just it's just so shocking when you hear about all of that type of stuff, those crazy expenditures, and then you also realize that the salary is three hundred and fifty one thousand dollars. Like I think that some of some of those numbers, like even though we're not talking like a bi- billionaires like Jeff Bezos, that type of thing, but I think that's just so. Um, far out for like the normal person that we don't really quite grasp that. But like that money is coming from our tax dollars, right? Oh, it sure is. And hey, folks, uh, I can't believe I have to say this out loud, but just because you represent a king or queen doesn't mean you need to live like one. Okay. Yeah. And, and the problem here is that this isn't a one-off story. Okay, right? Like, if we just dug up this story, and this was the first time that something coming from Rideau Hall or the Office of the Governor General was making us raise our eyebrows, right? If this was the first time, maybe we would say, okay, you know, this is crazy, but uh, you're spending money dry cleaning uniforms, linen, clothing, yada, yada, yada. But this isn't the case, okay? Uh, In the Governor General's first year in office, uh, she spent almost $3 million on travel. Yeah. That included the time when she went to the Middle East with her and her 30-person entourage and racked up $100,000 on airplane food. And then there was also the $71,000, 71K, on limo services in Iceland during a four-day trip. But it just goes on and on because it's not just this governor general, folks, right? It's not just her and her team at Rideau Hall. This has been going on at Rideau Hall, things like this, for decades, literally decades. They've been wasting our money living the living the extravagant life while we pay for it. Yeah, and when you say decades, like it, it's good to point that out because like this isn't like a, a partisan issue. It's not just the liberal government or just the conservative government. It's just, it just in general, it's like these people in power who have this ability to do it, and they just do it. And it almost because all of this stuff is public. Like we can find out this information. Obviously, we have it. It feels like a slap in the face, you know. So, what do you think, Franco? Like. How, how do we stop this from happening? How do we hold these leaders and these people accountable? How do we, like, transition away from this and so that, like, the next leaders of our country um, understand that they can't do things like this? Is that even possible? Okay. Oh, of course it's possible. So, number one, we have to keep digging up this information. We have to keep speaking about it. That's why I'm so grateful to be on your show, to talk to your audience, because we have to apply the pressure. Look, I wish, I really wish that whether it's, politicians, bureaucrats, the governor general, I wish that people at the top of the government would just, you know, stop for a moment, realize that not everyone lives within their bubble and that people are struggling and that they're spending other people's money. I wish they would just use common sense and cut out some of this waste. But look, it doesn't happen. Regardless of the party, it doesn't happen. You know, sometimes they make good decisions, they stumble into a good decision, but it doesn't happen unless people put the pressure on. So we have to keep the pressure on the government. Uh, But look, there's a couple things the government could do, right? Number one, uh, use some common sense and cut some, some of this waste back. Number two, the buck has to stop with the prime minister and the ministers responsible for this spending, right? So we need the politicians to actually do the right thing. And then number three is that there's actually a committee in Ottawa, a parliamentary committee, that's looking at the expenses coming from the governor's general office. Uh, I hear that they're going to be publishing a report with recommendations sometime soon. And so we got to look at this report because this type of spending, it should be recommended to cut this type of extravagance. Okay, so those are a couple, uh, you know, solutions to this problem. 
Yeah, and solutions that we definitely need to uh, take a hard look at. Okay, last question before I let you go here, and we'll get to some phone calls. 604-280-9898, and please do weigh in on this. But you talk about how these type of people, they live in this bubble, and you wish that they would kind of step out of it. Do you think that they have any um, actual uh, concept of what normal people are going through in terms of like struggling to pay rent, struggling to put gas in the car, and struggling to afford groceries? You think they can relate to that at all? No, 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 they can't. No, they quick, can't. That was a quick no. <laughs> no, but they can't. I mean, they've taken four pay raises since the beginning of COVID-19, right? So think about what you and your family uh, has, have gone through since the beginning of 2020. And then remember that your representative in Ottawa has taken four pay raises. And it's a cross-party thing, right? Like, where is any of the opposition parties actually speaking out against that? Okay? And then you have the fact, like, look, uh, Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet – uh, they spent, what, $275,000 on a cabinet retreat where they're going to look at uh, dealing with inflation. Mm-hmm. Right? Nothing screams uh, fighting for you like billing you for their nice steak uh, and lobster tail meals. So they have absolutely no idea what you're going through or they don't really care about what, they're, what you're going through. And to be honest, you know, I'm not sure what is worse. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks so much um, for the work that you do, first of all, trying to hold these people accountable and leading that charge, and for coming on this morning and trying to unpack this with us. Thanks, Franco. It's always great to talk. Hey, thank you for having me on today. Good morning. Scott Schantz filling in for Mike Smith. And how much does it cost to have kids in today's world, in today's age. We've been talking about money a bit this morning and uh, proper usage of it because times are tight for a lot of people right now. Inflation out of control, gas, groceries, cost of everything, rent especially. And for a lot of people, I think this is affecting their decision on whether or not they're going to have kids. Stats Canada is out with some new information about exactly how much it does cost. So in today's dollars, in today's you know economic situation, it would cost you more than $350,000 to raise a child from the age of zero to 17. And I don't know about you, but I don't know any kids that are leaving home at 17. You know, that number grows after the age of 17, but the study went from zero to 17, about $350,000. Now that can vary kind of depending on where you live, what you kind of provide for your kids. If you're upper class, middle class, maybe some lower class there, but there's no escaping that that is an astronomical amount of money. It breaks down to about $1,800 a month for 17 years. Here to help us kind of unpack that is Kate Choi. She's an associate professor of sociology at Western University. Thanks so much for being here, Kate. How are you? I'm doing well. Good morning. Are you surprised by this number, that huge number of how much it costs to raise children? Um, I think this is very much in line with what we have seen in prior work uh, on this particular topic, including those that are within Canada as well as outside of Canada. So, no, I was not surprised. Right. Yeah, I think we all kind of know how expensive it is. And, and, you know, it's just one of those things that if you choose to have kids, and I have two of them, if you choose to have kids, that that just you put it out of your mind, the total cost, right? And you just think this is what it is. And I chose to do this, and I love them, and I'm more than happy to support them. But it's like kind of when you take a step back and add all of that up that you really realize, wow, what could I have done instead? with this money. Not that I would do anything different. I'm very glad to have them. But you hear stats like this, and then it's not surprising also, I think, that a lot of couples are choosing to have less children or have no children at all. What are your thoughts on that? 
Indeed, um, the the fact that um, ch- uh, giving birth to a child, having a child is an expensive endeavor that requires large investments in money, in time, and uh, emotional resources as well. And because of this, um, many young adults are delaying or foregoing fertility because they don't think that they can afford to have children. And in fact, another uh, stats can report suggests that 38% of young adults who are primarily in their 20s are saying that they cannot afford having a child in the next three years. And is like, that's a a bad thing, I think, right? Like, should the finances, I mean, obviously we want to be responsible, but it's not, it doesn't seem like a good thing to me that finances would be, and economics would be a main factor in deciding whether or not we have kids. I think the main factor should be whether or not we want to have kids. And it seems like there are kids that or families that would want to, but are choosing not to because of, of that burden. I feel like it should, we should live in a place and we should, you know, construct a a society where if you want to do something like this, have children, something that would be great for the country going forward, um, you should be able to, it shouldn't be cost prohibitive. Yes, indeed. Um, the, the fact that things are so expensive that it's precluding couples or individuals who want children and preventing them from having children is not a good thing. And as a result, we need to design policies that kind of target the cost of living uh, crisis that Canada is encountering and also makes things like affordable uh, childcare more readily and easily accessible to young parents. Are there things that that you're aware of or that people are doing to sort of offset this cost? Uh, I know, like, for example, a big cost is daycare, and people are trying to come up with creative solutions, especially here in BC. I know a lot of people that do nanny share or rely on grandparents or other things like that. Are there ways that people are kind of getting creative to afford having kids? Indeed, and a lot of uh, individuals, as you indicated, are relying on um, grandparents and family members to provide informal care for their children, and that may be a potential way that they're reducing uh, the cost of uh, rearing children. Another uh, strategy that a lot of couples have adapted is actually living in a multi-generational household because, once again, housing is one of the biggest uh, cost items that contribute to the towards the 350,000 plus that uh, middle income families have to pay uh, to raise children. And I think that there are probably other places around the world where it works like that as well. I know you were talking sort of about how that do- that number doesn't surprise you when you kind of step back a little bit off the top of this interview. It, it, do you see that in other places beyond Canada? Like we're talking about Canada here, but is are, are we really that different here than other places in the world? No. Um, and uh, once again, um, in places like the United States or the United Kingdom, many East Asian countries, we are seeing that uh, the cost of uh, raising a child is becoming very expensive. We are also seeing, as you mentioned earlier, uh, parents uh, coming up with creative strategies to, uh, to reduce this. And the third thing that we are also seeing across different developing and developed countries is the fact that fertility is steadily decreasing. So uh, there's a lot of young individuals who are unable to have children at that time, and they're delaying uh, fertility. And 
when fertility is delayed for long periods of time, it often results in foregone fertility. Hmm. Okay. And let's talk about what happens um, society-wise if birth rates continue to decline, fertility continues to decline. Like, let's look at this. Like, when my kids, they're they're three and six. When they're when they're in their twenties, what's society going to look like if less and less and less and less and less people are having children? That is an excellent question. And when there is lower fertility, what ends up happening to a society is that it becomes a rapidly aging society. And it will very much be the case that there will not be enough workers in order to be able to fill a lot of the labor shortages. It will also be the case that when a population is aging, the health care cost is going to increase quite a bit. There will also be an increase in um, elderly care needs that potentially may not be met because there aren't enough young people to care for these individuals. So all of these things, um, the declining fertility because of the, the exorbitant cost of raising children has implications for future economic pro- productivity as well as the solvency of the social security system in Canada. Yeah, it really does affect all of us and it will, won't it? Um, Kate Choi, she's an associate professor of sociology at Western University. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate that. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Good morning and welcome back to The Mike Smith Show. I'm Scott Schantz filling in and let's talk about safety on our streets. There's a story out of Port Coquitlam about a group of parents who have kind of banded together to create a safe streets program there because of a couple incidents of violence and the fact that they just don't feel safe and they don't feel safe for their kids. Uh, An incident of uh, basically a group of teens have been swarming other kids in and around a park, and apparently it's the same teens that have been doing this, just, you know, causing violence, hurting kids, bullying, um, in some cases beating up kids, and no real reason why other than just like teenagers and youths being jerks, uh, for lack of a better term. This is something that kind of comes and goes, but it's kind of here right now. And people in the Tri-Cities are um, are a little bit concerned. So here to help us talk through some of this is Jessica Jade. She's a Safe Streets Tri-Cities spokesperson. Thanks so much for being here, Jessica. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So can you give me like your view of what 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 this is and what is sort of happening here? Tell me about like your experience with uh, youth and violence. And you're, you're in Port Coquitlam, is that right? Yes, I am. Yeah, tell me about your experience with youth and violence in Port Coquitlam. Okay, so my personal story. Just one second, sorry. It's okay, take your time. Okay, so my personal story happened to my daughter in June, who is 12 years old. And she was savagely gang-beaten by three girls, and it was recorded and put on social media. So they stomped her and kicked her in the head and face repeatedly, and one wrong kick to her temple, I could be on your show as a bereaved mother. She honestly could have been killed. It was horrifying to watch. And this video and many others like it are passed around and shared in a way that wasn't possible before social media. After her attack, I went on to post on Tri-City Mom Group, also known as TCMG on Facebook. They're fantastic. They've been really supportive. And I was met with a tidal wave of support, and upwards of 50 parents reached out to me to share stories of their own children who'd been impacted by kid-on-kid violence in our community. I was absolutely shocked. 
So it kind of feels like um, these people, that, that group of people, like they talk about the impact of, of kid-on-kid violence in the community. Why do you think nothing has been done to stop this up until, up until now? Like, are schools involved? Like, how do we get to this point where kids just are doing this type of thing? How does that happen? Well, there's many, many talented teachers, principals, and support staff, and way more than I can even name who deserve to be commended. Uh, but the problem is, in our case at least, that, um, and one big mistake that I made and I wanted to point out to other parents is that if your kids are hanging out with other kids out of school, make sure you ask if they do attend the same school. I just assumed. And so because of this, the school wasn't able to do a whole lot because mm. they weren't from the same school. So that is a part of it. And then we also realized that uh, the departments don't really talk. Um, so, yeah, we're hoping to be able to connect the different departments, uh, such as Crown Council, law enforcement, schools, parks and rec, because these uh, departments aren't necessarily speaking amongst the, each other. And so sometimes the issues are going unnoticed okay. or unreported. Yeah. And like sort of thinking about the heart of the issue here, why do you think that kids do this this type of behavior? I mean, I understand we all have conflict. Um, as adults, we know that like violence is not, not the way to like solve our problems. But what's happening that is causing kids to resort to, to violence to solve their problems? Is that an issue with parenting? Is that something? Because I think we see it, at, like right now we're talking about the Tri-Cities and Port Coquitlam, but we have seen instances of this all over the place. It happens everywhere. It's absolutely spanning yeah. everywhere, yeah. Yeah. Like so what, we kind of feel like post-pandemic, lots of kids were feeling the fallout of being isolated and alone. And social media and gaming took off to an extent we've never seen before during the pandemic and the lockdowns. So also many supports like the school liaisons and activities like field trips and extracurriculars were dialed back or canceled altogether. So we think that uh, it's kind of a connection problem amongst kids. They're lacking connect- connection with their community, with their peers, and with their parents. We kind of all got isolated, and that's a big part of this problem. Yeah. Okay. And what, what do you think parents should be doing? Because I know for me, like if my daughter has conflict on the playground, she's not 12, she's six, but when that has happened, I try to talk to the other parents. Um, what's the parent's role in preventing or interfering in in this type of behavior? Mm, So for parents, opening dialogue and having them become more involved and informed is going to allow the parents to speak frankly with their own kids and empower them to stick up for themselves and others. Uh, We're wanting to see education in schools regarding gang initiation, um, drug use, and cyberbullying. That would be a big help. Um, So, yeah, kids are our future, and it starts with them. So we want to educate our kids to be inclusive because kids who are left out or considered outliers are likely to either become victimized or to become an aggressor themselves. Have you, Jessica, had a chance to speak with... Uh, you know, you mentioned that this was your daughter, and I'm so sorry to to hear about that. It's just awful. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Have you had a chance or or an opportunity, or have you tried to get in touch with any of the those people's parents, any of those bullies' parents? Uh, I haven't gone through the parents specifically. I was letting the police kind of do their investigation, and we do have some charges pending against some of the youth. And many of the other ones who I've learned are connected have their own charges pending from different families. So Mm. there's definitely a big connection. 
but we we're supposed to kind of stay out of it so we're not really taking that approach necessarily but what we are trying to do uh is to put the village back in the inner city and make a community coalition and deal with things that way so uh we're hoping to call a super important meeting amongst all of the officials and the community as well. Uh, so we're hosting a community roundtable event in Port Coquitlam, and we're going to, going to announce the details once, as they come. Okay. But our goal is to join these sectors in an open discussion so we can forge a path forward okay. together. Do you, do you feel like uh, Port Coquitlam is a safe place? Do you feel like the schools there are safe places for, for kids? Well, I think to a large degree, there's not a lot that the schools can do, and I think that that needs to change. And we need to find, because the different departments, they're kind of all thinking they don't have jurisdiction to do every anything. So we're hoping to join the departments and have communication between them so that something can be done, because this is a huge problem. Good morning and welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. I'm Scott Schantz filling in this week. There's been lots of talk about bears over the last couple of weeks. There's the grizzly bear incident. A couple of people were killed. Uh, there's a black bear in between the highway out in Abbotsford. Seems like every day there's a new black bear story. I know in my backyard we had an aggressive black bear that had been tagged and the people had to come and get it and relocate it and then it came back. This is just part of living in British Columbia, living in the Lower Mainland. There's a lot of bears around here because guess what? We've moved into their habitat. Surprise! That's what happens. Uh, but there is a group that is advocating now, calling for uh, cities to cover the costs when bears are killed or have to be relocated off of their land. This is coming from a group called the Fur Bearers, and right now we're talking with Leslie Fox. She is the executive director of the Fur Bearers. Hi, Leslie. Thanks so much for being here this morning. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So tell me what you guys are proposing for uh, when BC cities and towns have to uh, basically remove a a bear. Yeah, so... So just some context for your listeners. Yeah, 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 please. It's it's really difficult right now with bears, and bears are in the news, and it's a timely issue. You know, the weather's changing, the seasons are changing, it's getting cooler, uh, animals, all wildlife are looking for food. Um, But as it relates to black bears, it's been a really bad year. And this year, uh, in August alone, 151 black bears were shot dead by the BC Conservation Officer Service. That's one of the highest numbers ever on record. Um, on average, about 500 black bears are killed by the BC Conservation Officer Service because they're deemed to be habituated or food conditioned, um, and the agency believes that that can be a threat to public safety. And so we know we have an issue with, with black bears in BC. Uh, we're, we're killing these bears year after year. And so to help this situation, some municipalities have worked hard to put in bylaws. They've changed their garbage cans. They've enacted no feeding uh, what, no wildlife feeding bylaws, they're doing the work. But we're aware, and, and many of your listeners are probably aware, there are other communities that still haven't got the memo. They don't have any educational programs. There's no bylaws or there's no local enforcement to help prevent human conflicts with black bears. And so a really good example is Prince George. Um, year after year after year, on average, over 30 black bears are killed by the BC Conservation Officer Service just in Prince George. Um, those involve cases of bears getting into garbage. So despite 
you know, repeated calls for action. Uh, the community has yet to implement any solutions, no locking mechanisms on garbage cans. And so black bears continue to pay the price with their lives. But the punchline here is that we're all paying for it. As provincial taxpayers, we're all paying for this service. Yeah, I was going to ask. So the province pays for it right now, like out of the tax pool, when a bear needs to be put down or or removed. That's where the money comes from. That's right. And so under our legislation, um, generally populations with over 5,000 people, they're responsible for paying policing costs from property tax. So municipalities, we pay the RCMP, it comes out of our property tax. That's just the deal with policing. So it's really important to understand that the BC Conservation Officer Service is a frontline policing agency. They're a provincial police force. So just like the RCMP, they're fully armed, they have full policing appointments, and they provide policing services in our community, generally related to environmental policing services. but they don't have a cost recovery program in place to build back problem communities or problem homeowners or businesses. And so we're, we're subsidizing non-compliant behavior, and it has to end. Right. And we'll get to that in a sec. But do you, do you know, Leslie, how much it costs to have to, to like put down a bear or to remove a bear, what that costs per bear? That's a very good question, and I, am at, I, I don't have a, a hard answer for you, and I'll say it's probably based on a case-by-case basis, depending on overtime. Um, we're very aware that the BC Conservation Officer goes into overtime hours um, because they're often short-staffed. There's issues related with transport, so depending on where the bear is, there, you, know, you could have an officer driving hours to get to a bear, um, sometimes the bear might not be on scene, so then you're spending hours trying to track the bear. So there's there's a few different variables that will affect the cost, but you can assume though it's it's very expensive. Um, and year after year after year, those costs add up. And so we're in a situation now where when you listen to some of these municipalities who have quite frankly poor planning and infrastructure, they'll tell you. It's too expensive. We can't get new garbage cans because it's too expensive. Right. And, and my message for them, though, is, yes, it is expensive, but somebody else is paying for it. The cost just doesn't go away. It's just being absorbed somewhere else. And in this case, Vancouver rights are paying for policing services in Prince George. It's right. crazy. Yeah, and so the idea here is that, like, we, we know, we absolutely understand that the way to get people to comply is to hit them in the pocketbook. So the idea yes. is to, like, treat these towns and municipalities and, and even homeowners with, you know, if, yes. this, if this is your responsibility, then you, you might end up being on the hook for it. So I guess, like, I understand that that makes sense. Like, let's take the homeowner, for example. Like, like I said, I, I live in North Ann, bears in the backyard all the time, all the time. Yeah. And uh, I have built a pretty sophisticated bear box to keep the bears out of the garbage cans. And then we also have the locks on the garbage cans. And no good bear has you. fooled me yet. So I feel, I feel pretty good. <laughs> good it's like you. I'm having a mental battle with these bears every summer. So that's great. But the idea is that if I was leaving food out, causing a bear to come to my yard all the time, and then that bear had to be put down, we really 
realize that that's my fault and now I'm on the hook for having, for having this. So, okay, if it, if it cost me, you know, I don't know, $4,000, next time I'm going to be a little bit more careful because exactly. I don't want... Exactly. Totally. I agree. With, I think that makes perfect sense that... Well, I, I, I really love your diligence and I love what you're doing to knock yourself out to be a responsible homeowner and I'm sure your neighbors appreciate that too. And that's what we're looking at. We're looking at changing human behavior. The reality is, is the numbers pretty much stay the same year after year after year. Over 500 bears are dying. It's usually related to garbage or attractants, which is a people problem. It's not a bear problem. It's a people problem. Well, and, yeah, I you mean, know, we've, we've, like, we've got great programs. They're just not working. Certainly. Like if you lived in North Van, anyone who lives in North Van knows like it's bear town. You're surrounded by bears. And when we moved there, the neighbors, you know, I didn't want to keep the garbage cans in the garage. And the neighbors right away, as soon as I put them outside, they're like, you can't leave those there, dude. Those are going to get absolutely destroyed. And it only took one time, you know, having to clean up an entire yeah. garbage can's worth of thing that it was just like, this is a bad idea. And of course, I have dog, I have kids, you know, all that type of stuff. You don't want bears around. I mean, it is pretty, pretty great to see them. But the idea of hitting people where it counts and also uh, like the example that we talked about with the homeowner, if you put that model onto uh, a municipality or a township that it's like, well, this is happening a lot in, I don't know, Coquitlam. So we're going to, we're going to find Coquitlam. They're going to pay for it until they start, you know, making changes that are going to trickle down and make a, make an actual difference. That's a great idea. A hundred percent. It's really at the end of the day, it's about fairness. And if, if there's municipalities that continue to avoid implementing bylaws, they're not doing the work, they don't have education programs, they don't have locking devices, then they should be prepared to pay for the extra policing costs associated with that behavior. And, and, um, it, it really is, I think, you know, using the existing legislative infrastructure that's there. It already exists. This isn't a crazy concept where policing services are, you know, covered um, under property tax. Like, and, and in this situation, when the BC Conservation Officer Service goes in, that's being subsidized by all of us. And so it's, it's really time to, to send that bill to who it really belongs to. Absolutely. And hopefully it ended up in less, less bears uh, having to be put down because that's always unfortunate as well. Leslie Fox, Agreed. she's the executive director of the Fur Bearers. What do you th- like? Do you think that this is actually going to happen? When is it going to happen? What is the likelihood of, of this uh, cost getting passed on? Where are we at on that? Well, we've raised the issue with the BC Conservation Officer Service. They generally are receptive to it. As you and I both know, government sometimes moves at the speed of molasses. And mm-hmm. so um, you know, getting actual action on this issue is another thing. But certainly I think we'll be persistent and our supporters will be persistent. Um, and people can, can follow us at, you know, thefurbears.com, learn more and, and see where we are with this initiative. Fantastic, Leslie. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.